Beyond food, there are whole hosts of products that we consume that we know little about when it comes to their ingredients or how they were produced. Today we are dedicating this hour to understand the amazing world of producing alcohol, in this case, rum. Responsible rum production, sustainability in a bottle, that's our focus in this hour of an organic conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. From body care to clothing, from cleaning agents to alcohol, we've had several shows on products that are not necessarily regulated by the organic law, and thus we, as consumers, are potentially not quite as protected from harmful ingredients as we could or should be. This week we are speaking with an expert on the issues and concerns and much healthier environmental and societal solutions in the production of spirits alcohol, in this case, rum. Responsible rum production, sustainability in a bottle. That's our focus in this hour of an organic conversation. This show is brought to you by Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or culinary arts, bowmancollege.org and Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com And thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. Our topic in this hour is responsible rum production, sustainability in a bottle. All that and more in just a minute right after the break. Stay tuned. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. 
Our topic in this hour is responsible rum production, sustainability in a bottle. It's one of those products that beyond food, we have very little knowledge about how it is produced and how it is regulated, if at all. And so thus, we are potentially not quite as protected from harmful ingredients as we could or should be what's even involved in the production. We're speaking with the expert, and that is Tristan Merman, founder and CEO of Batiste Rum, a San Francisco boutique rum producer who's joining me today in this studio. Tristan, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. It's nice to see you, Helga. <laughs> Out of all the products, let's start with that, you could have fallen in love with, uh, why rum? What, what makes rum for you special to dedicate, you know, however many years your life to promoting more sustainable production? I think it has to do with the sustainable part of it. Um, you know, there's a chance to get involved with projects that have a lot of different delivery methods and different systems that can be involved in the manufacturing and supply of it. And um, this particular project has so many good, interesting facets that have to do with sustainability, environmental renewal, and producing a product within an industry that's not really tracking the same way that the food movement is. Great, yeah, and we want to talk about all those details. How did you stumble across rum? Did you travel, and you, or were you always a rum lover? Why? No, I was spending a lot of time in the Caribbean at the time, and uh, mostly in the French Caribbean, and it, it essentially led from one thing to the next, and um, I'm originally from San Francisco, and in the early 2000s, the whole idea of craft cocktail was just starting to emerge. And I had a, I didn't see any French rum in the U.S. market, and I thought it'd be interesting to look into it a little bit more. And as part of that research in the Caribbean, I came in contact with my partner now, who was just finishing up building the first eco-positive distillery in the Caribbean. When we talk about rum, just like body care, clothing, we had so many shows in, in the last years on those products that may or may not fall under the organic law, and then there's fair trade and a few other trustable seals. But let's start with the basics. What is rum exactly? How is it made? Well, what's interesting about rum is that it's the first product of the Industrial Revolution. So if you think about how the Americas were discovered and exploited, it had everything to do with sugar, sugar cane, and its byproduct, molasses. So molasses is the traditional base material for making rum. And that technique is, you know, you take molasses and then you add water and you ferment it and then you distill it and then you have a product that you have to do more things to. Either you age it or you flavor it. or That's basically it. So it's a derivative of sugarcane juice that is molasses that's created after you boil it for sugar, and you take that product, and then you ferment it, distill it, and bottle it. And it, it is part of, I guess, the spirits category as a product category, right? Yeah, completely. As spirits, it's one of those, I would say, fringe consumer product movements where education and and the processing is only now becoming you know, uh, part of our education, food that happened already 10 years ago. We are learning more now. Alcohol still, if, you know, we have, we, we speak with Katrina Fry from Fry Vineyards about organic and biodynamic wine. And when we see what is in wine, if it's not organic or biodynamic, uh, it's 
it's quite remarkable of the things that we should know about and don't. I would think that with spirits, with higher percentage alcohol, it's potentially even worse. What are some of the issues in alcohol production, rum or not, that you see that you've come across? Yeah. Well, again, going back a little bit into history, um, spirits are generally made from the waste of agriculture. So if you have corn, co you know, corn that's turned, fruit that's turned, rice that's turning, wheat that's turning, beer that's being made, you know, the waste from that, historically, uh, spirits were a way of capturing that waste. And, you know, they were expensive, they were rare, they were really not available to the general public for most of their history. Now, they are far more available, and a lot of the American alcohol production is the same feeder stock that goes to the ethanol production for cars. Um, the explosion in spirits really occurred uh, in the late 90s with the American Energy Independence Act <laughs> that was thought was the idea about using corn ethanol mm -hmm. to supplement 10% of the car gasoline consumption need and was also the kickoff in many ways for GMO corn. And the same material that's being used for that corn ethanol is in most part the same material that's being used for vodka, gin, and whiskeys on a larger scale. That's not, it's not ubiquitous, meaning not every single person is of doing course. it that way, but a large majority of the products are that way. And you can really tell by, based on price. You know, if you're paying $10 or less for spirits, you're probably drinking the same material that's used for corn ethanol. It still needs to be regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, right? Even spirits or like what is allowed to yeah. be used where you would say from a consumer perspective, wow, that's a question, very questionable yeah. material. Yeah, it, spirits still are seen more like a vice than a food product. So they're regulated by the Trade Tax Bureau, which are the same people who handle firearms and explosives and tobacco. And uh, the FDA doesn't do much in terms of inspection. That being said, there are organic producers of spirits, and they do get organic certification. But again, that has to come. That comes back to the the base material that they use to ferment. So, if you have an an organic corn vodka, the f distillery who is fermenting that product is getting organic corn that they're then fermenting and then distilling. Uh, one important component of understanding the production around distilled spirits is that to be a distillery, you genuinely have to take the organic material, ferment it, and distill it. So there's a lot of interest in craft distilling, which is taking that secondary product, that distilled product, and then doing things with it. So they'll redistill it, they'll filter it, they'll make distillate products that they'll use for blending. And so it's not a genuine mm -hmm. distillery where you're fermenting product and distilling it. So what are the consumer issues? If you if you look at then what is being used and what is not, what sticks out for you yeah. when we compare? Right. Well, I mean, if you consider that anything that goes in your mouth is either food or poison, uh -huh. you know, how you make this volatile material really matters. So how clean is the fermentation? How well regulated is that fermentation? Meaning, is there somebody watching the fermentation for mold and bacterial growth? Is the material that's being used for the fermentation and material that you would want to consume? And then, you know, the distillate is, it's just, you know, you turn on the machine and it distills. I mean, it's not, it's not as critical as the fermentation process. And you, you keep saying that, actually, when we talked about this show before, you kept saying that, that for you, alcohol is just like an, any other food. It should be regulated as such. Yeah, I mean, the, the challenge for that, again, is that it 
unlike food, uh, you're concentrating lots of organic material to make fermented products from for, to go from there. It would certainly help to have that kind of inspection level uh, if you know if the consumers were really calling for it. But at the same time, the U.S. views spirits as a vice that's taxable, which they don't look at food products in the same way. You know, food products are not vices that are taxable. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Our topic in this hour is responsible rum production, really on behalf of all higher percentage, higher volume spirits, sustainability in a bottle. And we couldn't speak with a better expert. That's Tristan Merman, who's joining us today here in the studio. He's the founder and CEO of Batiste Rum, a San Francisco Bay Area producer of Caribbean-based rum. Is that a fair description? Yeah, I mean, our the organization of our production is in two parts. We have a fermentation and distillation happening in the Caribbean, and then our final production happens here in Sonoma. And the idea behind that is uh, to control waste, to control product quality, uh, to use the tremendous resources that are available here in Northern California to produce higher quality products. When we compare... First of all, is consumer awareness from your perspective shifting in those niche areas of consumerism? Yeah. Um, how you how know, do you know? Well, I, I heard the other day, I thought it was really fascinating. There was a conversation about how the avant-garde of new politics, let's say it for that way, really comes out of the environmental food movement. Um, What, what's the avant-garde of new politics? Uh, rather than, you know, when, when so much of... of Progressive politics is advocating for the rights of people, animals, earth, water, and you know, us holding back on exploitation by mm -hmm. folks who are more interested in the profits of it. The 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 need to push on people who are interested in exploitation by saying, "Hey, you can't treat people that way. Hey, you can't treat the earth that way. Hey, you can't treat the water that way. Hey, you can't treat the animals that way," and then wag your finger at them. Now it's turning towards you know what. We're going to take care of the food sources. We're going to make sure that what we get a hold of and how they're treated are non-exploitive, non-poisonous. And we're not really focused up on, you know, how much profit can come out of it. So the contrast as to how it has been to how it's going forward is that more and more people are paying closer attention to how things are produced, not only as a health concern, but as a a political concern or as a philosophical ethos human, or human, human concern. concern. Yeah. So, you know, it when you apply your attention to how things are made and how others are affected by it, not only other humans, but, you know, the system at whole, uh, then naturally when you introduce products to that world that message the same way that can be verified right. and authenticated that way. They either fit or they don't. Yeah, exactly. And how is that? When we when we look at rum production, which you're an, an expert of for all spirits, really, when you compare sustainable and non-sustainable alcohol products or spirits such as rum in production, in ingredients, what are like the big issues, if you just go down sure. the list? Well, one thing to think about when it comes to spirits making, much in the same way as wine or beer, is that these are concentrations, right? And in, and in rum or other spirit making, it, it's really high concentration. So for example, for every bottle of Batiste rum created, there's 12 kilos of sugar cane per bottle. It's a, hundred and it's a ton per 140 liters. You know, that's a lot of material to produce one product. You know, 12 kilos of sugar cane to make one bottle of rum. Uh, 
Um, so if you think of it in corn or if you think of it in rice or in wheat or things, you know, these are high concentrations of material. So if you've got a corn that's a Roundup-ready corn that you are concentrating, then fermenting, then distilling, then consuming, you know, what's not known is how much residue material from the Roundup-ready sure. corn is getting, how much residue is coming from the, the uh, chemical fertilizer. You just don't know it. So when it comes so to... theoretically, if that's the same conversion you're saying, you would basically be eating 12 kilos of Roundup-ready corn yeah, for, a, for one a bottle, bottle of, of vodka. vodka. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, so, you, you know, that just <laughs> that, you know, and you don't know how much yeah, Roundup crazy. is on there, you know, so, sure. um, and it certainly doesn't wash off, you know, nobody's washing this material and there no, there's no hydrogen peroxide used to yeah. clean off the materials of before course. production. It just goes in, you know, that's, you know, the other part of alcohol that's left out is, is a, it's a volatile material, right? You know, so um, I, one of my favorite things is this equation. They say one beer is the equivalent of, you know, two glasses of wine or one shot of alcohol. And it's like, that's not the correct equation because it doesn't take much to get one ounce of alcohol to set on fire. But what it would take to take one pint of beer and set it on fire would be, you know, pretty dramatic. So you have this volatile substance that, you know, is combustible. Uh, you're drinking it. Um, it transfers ingredients beautifully, you know, like, uh, before the pharmaceutical world it was in, in play, uh, tinctures made from alcohol were how people got their medicine. And so, you know, this is, a, this is a carrying medium that will move molecules throughout the entire body. So if you're moving Roundup molecules... Which is a good way, or it's, an, it's not, right? It's a good attribute, or it's a Yeah, it's either a positive attribute. or a negative, you know. And, um, you know, in, in our case, you know, we're looking to constantly push cleaner. Um, so when you do consume it, um, the the added ingredients are of your choosing as opposed to our choosing. So or, you would say that the agriculture methods, because it's a in a way concentration, that's w one of the biggest issues of looking of how how is the original ingredient being being yeah. farmed. Yeah, I mean, there's so that's one component. Another component is um, you know why you know you ask the question why is it that I'm interested in rum? Well, because of its environmental position, because sugarcane, unlike corn or wheat or rice doesn't have many other uses, white wheat, rice, corn, these can be used as food. Sugarcane is, is not a lot of opportunities for sugarcane to be used as food. So again, here you have this high volume production, requires a lot of, of plant material to create it. Uh, would it be better used as food or would it be better used as, as alcohol? Which brings up, of course, the community that you work with in the Caribbean. Yeah. Sugarcane, not many uses, and yet these people are dependent on the sale and the growth of sugarcane, which is one of the only, or one of the few products that that can be grown there. Of course, in addition to tourism, but as an agricultural product, it's it's a big commodity. Yeah. In that sense, however small the production may be, we want to hear all about that right after the break. You're listening to an organic conversation. Our topic in this hour is one of those categories of products that we know fairly little about and yet that affect our lives every day in one way or another. In this case, spirits, alcohol, responsible rum production, sustainability in a bottle. I'm speaking with Tristan Merman, the founder and CEO of Batiste Rum. That's Batiste Rum, B-A-T-I-S-T-E-R-H-U-M dot com. In this hour of an organic conversation, we'll take a quick break, but we'll be back with so much more. Stay tuned.
And we are back to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, responsible rum production, sustainability in a bottle. On behalf of all alcohol or spirits, we're speaking with Tristan Merman, who is joining me today here in the studio. He's the founder and CEO of Batiste Rum. That's rum, R-H-U-M, Batiste, B-A-T-I-S-T-E-R-H-U-M.com. It's one of those products or product categories that we know very little about, and education is just now starting. We wanted to shed light on that. And Tristan, right before the break, you were saying we were, we were coming to the point of community and sugarcane. All the other products, including even rice, are grown domestically here in the U.S. at this point. Sugarcane is not. When we look at the Caribbean, where it's really one of the few agricultural staples that they have, what did you find when you traveled the islands? What are those communities like? Can you create a picture for listeners to, you know, how big are the farms? Yeah. What, what were the farmers um, do? Well, our project has the great fortune of being based in the French Caribbean, which is a state of France. So um, the, 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 the islands that have the most uh, production are the U.S. properties, uh, the French properties. Uh, those are the two major Caribbean locations that are making most of the rum that people know, Captain Morgan, Bacardi. Um, and the French products mostly go into France. Um, in the U.S., the, the sugarcane that is grown is mostly grown in Florida and Louisiana. And again, Bacardi products are, are made in those locations. Throughout the rest of the Caribbean, though, there are a lot of you know island nations that are making rum the way they've made it for a long time. And even in the French Caribbean, it's the same story. And uh, what's really unique about Baptiste Rum and why it's a great project for me to be involved in is uh, the founder of the particular operation that we work with happened to have been the environmental inspector for the whole region. And when his uncle passed away, he was put in charge of running, uh, rehabilitating the plantation and the distillery. And he had the great foresight and knowledge to be able to use uh, French government credits to build an eco-positive distillery. So he was able to put in a two and a half megawatt solar farm. He was able to put in an open air biomass digester. He was able to use all to create a, a, a mill that ran off the stock of the crushed sugar cane. So it was an entirely cohesive program that went into place. So eco-positive. Can, yeah. you, can you explain yeah, that? So, what so is it? What if you, you think of, yeah, so in agriculture, it's much easier to be eco-positive than it would be, say, in car manufacturing. Um, in, in this case, the idea is Do you create more energy that, than you consume? Do you have more waste than, than more waste than product? Uh, are you adding topsoil? Are you taking away topsoil? So, what's the net impact of your product? Cool. And you know, again, growing sugarcane uh, is a fantastic carbon dioxide sink. So, not only are we producing more energy than we're consuming, we have the possibility of sequestering carbon dioxide gas into the soil because we're not burning the fields, which is a tradition within the Caribbean, is to burn the fields, then go collect it, then press it, then make sugar from it, or molasses. Yeah, Hawaii, I've seen it there too. Yeah, uh, so not everywhere. burning um, allows the cane to be a perennial, you know, it's a big lawn, and the lawn just, you know, it's like a tube, and it just sucks carbon dioxide into the ground, it sequesters it, adds sugar to it, and then when it grows, it's creating sugar as it grows, and so it sequesters and grows sugar. So how can, you, how can you harvest the sugar if you don't burn it? Uh, it's, it's a big lawn, you know, so you, you mow it. You mow it, you know, and some of it's cut by hand, some of it's cut by tractors, but yeah, you're just, you're mowing areas of lawn. 
what areas are those? What are you? What What are the uh, communities based on? How big are the farms? Well, like? This particular island, Mary Galant, it's very small. It's I think there's ten thousand people who live on the island, um, and it's basically one big garden island. There's you know the only output is sugarcane. And uh, their their farms are what two three acres at that. Um, no, there's a lot of different ones. You know, like for example, if you and I and lived there and we were a regular folk, we would have a backyard garden where we would grow maybe up to five, six hundred pounds of sugarcane a year and we would pay, be paid for that. If we, you know, in some, some places they have communities that will grow much more. The plantation attached to the distillery has 280 hectares that are used for sugarcane growing. So it's a, it's a bit of an open market, but pretty much everyone's involved in sugarcane growing, cow farming, or... Uh, that's about it, really. And then what? Like just like with with coffee, yeah. uh, I think those runners right. are called coyotes. Yeah. But um, you have somebody who who buys this. Sure. For so the distillery, uh-huh. the distillery itself buys sugar based on sugar quantity and weight. So those are the two things that it pays for. But yeah, you know, that's that those that's how it's brought in. And then after that, once it's been crushed and ferment juiced. In the fermentation process, the distillery manages for bacterial mold every hour before it's distilled. So the unique pieces for the distillery are that they're buying on quality and weight as opposed to just weight, and then that monitoring for bacteria or mold after it's being fermented. It's a a radical contrast from almost every distillery in the region. That makes your company, in this case, the leader in that field, right? It's the it's the first eco positive. Yeah. Is that right? Eco positive. Yeah. That's yeah. how you call it. Yeah. First eco positive, in this case, rum product. Yeah. You were saying there's a methane digester. You actually uh, well, it's it's a so when once you f- once you extract the sugar, right? When, well, if if you think of it, the, the fermentation tanks, you put in this raw juice, right? And then you add we add yeast to it to ferment it. As it's being distilled, there's a lot of organic material that's left. So there's basically an alcoholized sugar water waste that's got fiber, that's got mold, it's got alcohol in it. And if you just dump it, you know, it's kind of a toxic subproduct. If you put it into a digester and you oxygenate it, it will eventually digest all of the alcohol and turn to dirt and water. And that dirt and water is then used as fertilizer and irrigation water in the field so that that completes the cycle. And you're producing energy by... There's well the, the the solar farm creates its own energy. The stock that's crushed is then used the grass, as the yeah, lawn. Right, right is then used in a boiler to run the steam mill that crushes the grass. And all that actually, you guys were able to capture in a really interesting educational video, just a few minutes long. But I think it's the first of its kind to show the process that you are the the extra mile that you are going through yeah. compared to as you already mentioned, other large rum companies. They burn the fields, they extract the sugar, and and then what is the what yeah. has the traditional so, way been? Okay, I so mean, the, tra- the traditional so, before the... Yeah, so the traditional, you know, and one of the things that should be clear, you know, is we have this advantage of being a new operation, mm-hmm. so, and we have the advantage of being attached to the French French government. So Fair these, enough. These are, these are distinct advantages. Uh, if you get into the smaller islands where, you know, the, the local rum is, is owned by mm-hmm. the government, the amount of investment that might be required to make an analogous product is something that's often beyond their ability to pay mm-hmm. for. So they stay enough. with their, sure. their existing traditions. You know, so if you were around in the 17th century making rum, uh, you would 
people would burn the field to chase off any animals in it and also to cut the fronds that are really sharp. So then they would go through, they would cut that, they would crush that and flush it. So they'd flush all the burnt sugar out of that. They would filter that. That would then either, that would then be boiled for rock, rock sugar that would be taken off and that was the most valuable extract. And you can do that a few times and you get varying levels of molasses quality based on that process. Hmm. So most of the world's rum, and when I say most, I mean like 98% of the world's rum is made from molasses. And as odd as it may seem, most of the molasses that's used to make rum comes from Brazil and Mexico. These are the two largest manufacturers of molasses. So there are islands that are rum manufacturers now that have no sugarcane at all, but they have a tradition for making rum. So they're importing molasses either from Brazil or Mexico to do this process. So as a category, it's a tough category to look at from a point of view of sustainability. Um, it's, you know, and for, for a lot of people, it is, there, it is what sustains them as an, as an income. But from an environmental position, it's, you know, it's a little heavy duty. Yeah, it's just interesting. In, in agriculture, for the last you know, 20 years, we've heard you can't raise cows on grass. Yeah. That's long over, yeah. right? It's yeah. done. No, and, it's... of course, we are now back to all organic and certified right. grass-fed yeah. beef production. And so we, we always pushed kind of the envelope of how things were done 200 years ago. We lost them. You can't go back. And yet it sounds like Batiste is the closest to that original idea yeah. that you can possibly – and maybe better in some categories. Yeah, right, I mean, the, you know, the great thing about now is that there is this um, – Technology in a yeah, way. Yeah, the, just the information. Yeah, exactly. You know, just the information, the access to te technology pieces that allow for integration in a way that didn't exist before. You know, before the Industrial Revolution, it was labor that paid for it. You know, lots of people working, getting sure. very little to achieve <laughs> what you can do now with technological improvements. I mean, my, one of my favorite jokes is, you know, before the Industrial Re Revolution, people died of rotten food and infectious diseases. You know, after the Industrial Re Revolution, people die of poisoned food and infectious diseases. So, you know, the, the, idea, the chance to get... That's meat in the middle. Yeah, you know, the chance to take away the poison food component is really, you know, an interesting place to be. We're speaking with Tristan Merman, the founder and CEO of Batiste Rum, a San Francisco Bay Area-based boutique rum producer that's batiste rum rum with h r h u m dot com who's joining us today in this hour of an organic conversation responsible rum production sustainability in a bottle really on behalf of the world of spirits i would categorize you clearly and i think you would too as an environmentalist first right Always. you could be Always. doing whatever it, it yeah. may be in this yeah. case you traveled the islands the French Caribbeans and, and stumbled across rum and saw what's p possible and what's not sustainable. And you're changing the industry, really. What's your goal with the company? Um, well, again, you know, there's, there's this great story to be told where, you know, you can change the world through shopping. And so, you know, the idea that we can create a message around sustainable production, uh, show a method that does work, prove it, you know, so like... In, in, And it's in degrees, right? Like, I mean, you, you could spend a fortune and a lifetime trying to get it down to the nitty gritty and, and every aspect of your production being flawless. You know, that I'd say that it's more interesting to kind of go along the route and, you know, when there's opportunities to improve, you find them or you can afford them to implement them and go. So the idea that we can be a part of this growing message of, you know, it's 
a direct relationship to plant life, its effect on human life, how we integrate in between the two, use it for a better coexistence with us uh-huh. all. Yeah. You know, it's it's an interesting place to be and and to do something that's tangible, do something that has an effect, uh, both, you know, in consumption and also kind of ethically, that's a really interesting place to be. And I know you're you're speaking from, you know, a place of humbleness, but nothing of what you guys have been able to create has been done before, right? This is you know, I, it's it's what, so what, common to have the rum production of the yeah. last sixty years. You know, yeah. the 400 pirate four hundred years. <laughs> But you know, I'm talking about the pirate idea yeah. and all like that. The whole cliche of yeah. unsustainable, highly sprayed um, agricultural crops. Uh, it's an end product of that. Yeah. And nobody talks about the health benefits. And somebody yeah, again, if you spirits. view it as a vice, then you know, hey, you brought it on yourself. You know, um, so that's I, I think again, you know. If it goes in your mouth, it's either poison or food. So we'd like our particular product to be food, not poison. I love that. And that's also how you are. We're almost out of time, but I want to talk about how you are integrating this product now into the agricultural world, really positioning it as food. Usually rum is, generally speaking, made as a cocktail, right? It's, yeah. all, it's a mixed Yeah, or, or a drink that's enjoyed neat. Yes, and you are combining it with organic produce now. Right. What's the tell us about it? What's well, the idea? So again, if it gets back to this idea, if you consider this as a food product, yes. uh, what other food products can it work with? And you know, being a tropical product, it works great with tropical foods. So those are mostly citrus products and some nuts and things of that sort, like nutmeg or cinnamon, which is not a nut, but um, so. For example, when you see on the shelf in the in the liquor stores or in your supermarket, you see flavored vodkas or flavored gins or flavored rums. The question becomes, how are they flavored? And if you use actual food, food and you can also create <laughs> flavored rum, and you know, so it's infusions, but primarily that you can tinker with and make to your own to your own taste, and then at least you know what you're getting. Again, because alcohol is such a fantastic conveyor of essential oils and such. So if you do an orange-infused rum, you get a lot of the benefits of an orange product because it's moving through your body pretty quickly. It's not to say that you should, you know, make that your, make that your staple <laughs> experience. Uh, but you know, at the same time, you know, when you contrast it to what else is available. Uh, it, it can be a better choice. Um, you could make this discussion around all organic spirits, not specific to you know Baptiste Rum. There's or as you said, anything that enters your body, right? Yeah, yeah. So we are not exclusive in the world of products that are food quality. Uh, there's certainly a growing movement of things that are called grain to glass, farm to you know farm to table ideas, where smaller operations are buying organic winter wheats or buying. Uh, organic rice materials or, or buying, you know, residue uh, grape juice and making spirits from them. And they're very high quality. And Which is are, exciting, right? Yeah, it's great. It's, it, again, any opportunity to make it more of an environmental story and a food story is certainly better for us all everywhere. So do you have a couple of recipes at, at hand of how to, sure. for the holidays? Yeah, I mean, Thanksgiving we, we coming are, up? I, I don't know if this is appropriate, but we are, we have videos of showing people how we make infusions. That's totally appropriate. Okay, so we have videos <laughs> showing people how we make infusions. And, like what? Do you have a couple uh, of, like, just yeah. as an example, not, so, not I mean, how to do like it. Like the, the easiest one would be like vanilla rum. You know, you put vanilla beans in the rum bottle and you let it soak there. And, you know, five days later you have vanilla rum. And if it's not sweet enough, you add whatever sh- sweetener you want. And now you have sweetened 
vanilla rum. One that we were playing with that's pretty interesting is to use dried roasted coconut and dried pineapple rings and soak that in rum. And what you end up with is a, uh, you know, a, a liqueur that is essentially a pina colada liqueur. So you have pineapple coconut flavored rum. Um, you can, I think one time we did it with... Uh, is, is that an old tradition or did you guys come up with that? No, no. In, in, I mean, even in Germany, they have rum balls. Exactly. You know, that's, so that's, that you know, would have been yeah. very <laughs> yeah. common. So uh, it's, it's very common over yeah. the holidays yeah. to have red wine or red wine and rum yeah. mixed. And yeah. then you put apples or pears sure. in it. And two months later, you yeah. eat the fruit. So I would the, say the tradition around preserving fruit and alcohol yeah. is very, very old. Yes. And again, it's this return to what was commonplace 100 years ago, but now with the awareness of how to select for it as opposed to growing all of it yourself and then doing it yourself. Now, you know, most of us are not one step away from agriculture. We're two, three steps away from agriculture. So making the right choices about the products can get you back to a tradition that is very old and was relatively clean as it relates to chemical use in production. Yes, and not just in food, but obviously now, as we heard, really in everything. Yeah. From skincare to alcohol and spirits. Amazing. Where can people learn more? What's your best source? Website, um, Facebook? Yeah, we have we have a website that's relatively informative, I think. I think we've put a good effort into it, and that's of course Batiste Rum, B A T I S T E R H U M dot com. Uh, we have a Facebook page that's also that. People there's, will find that video yeah, that I mentioned. I think those videos there are there. Yeah. About sustainable production. I, I, and Last I checked. Lots right. of recipes. <laughs> um, yeah, lots of recipes, lots of different information about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, my hope when this is, you know, as this project grows, is the idea that people spend a lot of time understanding the environmental benefit that agricultural can ha agriculture can have for the global system, that they understand that their choices are between food and poison, primarily, when they're consuming it, and that uh, they have models that they can look at that say, well, I know these people do it this way. Why isn't everyone doing it this way? And then be able to make those contrasts between those different choices and decide from the consumer's point of view. You know, that's, that's that political movement where I'm choosing this direction because it says more than me doing anything else. Yeah, that's great. And I, I can assure you that this movement is, as I'm sure you're well aware of, um, is absolutely now a worldwide movement here in the Bay Area, of course, from, from sustainable burger production and really any product you could imagine or dream of. And then when you leave the Bay Area in San Francisco, it kind of dips maybe a little bit. But as a worldwide movement, our show is listened to in 135 countries uh, all the way to oh, Dubai in, in a city that is completely unsustainable. Yeah. <laughs> um, so people, we are people, we're all humans. Yeah. That, uh, and, and, and when people re get reminded of your message, we all come together yeah. literally around the table. So I want to do one advocation for cows. Sure. Um, so one of the things that's fascinating about the relationship between grass and cows is that together they are the environmental atmosphere producer and sequester. So as grass grows, as cows eat it, it creates a renewal that allows more and more carbon to be parked. So when you think about how soil is created is the relationship between herbivores and grass that's created all the topsoil that we enjoy so much. Yeah, so you're saying it's not about yes or no, it's about this, what's that, the and quality more. This, that, of our and relationship. More. It's yeah. always this, that, and more. <laughs> And that is Tristan Merriman, the founder and CEO of Batiste Rum. Again, that website is Batiste, 
B-A-T-I-S-T-E, and rum, R-H-U-M. Why, why that H? Because uh, it's French. Nice. BatisteRum.com for more information. Thanks so much for coming in. Sure, and thanks for having yeah, us. Yeah, beautiful message. Thank um, you. I hope you will continue, and I know you will continue your environmental work in whatever it is, and make Batiste Rum super successful and really um, your trailblazer uh, with anything you touch. And in this case, it's great that we now have a sustainable solution in, in the spirit world. Thank you, Howard. Thank you. That's awesome. Happy holidays. You too. Responsible rum production, sustainability in a bottle, and now we're switching the topic only slightly. Sustainability in the field. Here's healthy organic fruits and vegetables, the update from the San Francisco produce dock with our consumer segment of what to look out for, what to buy, how to buy it, how to store it. Here is what's in season. And with us now, as always, is the voice of the San Francisco produce market, Mr. Organic, the founder and owner of Earl's Organic, Earl Herrick. Earl, are you there? Ah, uh, Helga, we talk again. <laughs> we are. <laughs> Last week, we talked about fall fully being here. There's no doubt about it anymore. The rain has come in. The, the weather has changed, even in Northern California now. With that, it announced and actually ended, physically ended, uh, some last summer crops. And you were saying that now also the time of orange is starting, the time of citrus yes. is here. And how great that, that nature always provides what we need the most. These are actually quite of cool days, even in California, of course, packed with vitamins. What are we looking at in the citrus world? Well, you know, it is like I did want to mention that you were so spot on about Mother Nature. Uh, the last couple of weeks, I've had a, we had a little bit of a three or four people at work come down with some sinus yeah. uh, congestion uh -huh. and colds, yep. and bingo, yep. you, you slap right some oranges on there. And, and the, for me, I think I mentioned this in some episodes not so long ago, the, the satsuma season is really, at this point, just starting. Uh, you know, November is really the month that comes. Some There's a couple couple growers that may start at the end of October, but really November is when it, when it comes on strong, November, December. And this crop is, is, a, is a good crop this year. It's one um, of your favorites, right? It is, it is one of my favorites. Why? What is, what's so special well, about satsumas? A couple things. One is the ease of enjoyment. Uh -huh. uh, they are easy to peel. Yeah, you, they, they fall have, out of the skin. Yeah, and they have no seeds. Uh -huh. and, and, and they yield such intense concentrated flavor and uh -huh. sweetness. Yeah. This one particular grower that we do business with, with whom we do business, d does just a great job year in and year out. So I like the sugar acid content that he's able to produce. And even the uh, liquid, right? I mean, it's maybe not a juicing... What is it, actually? What is it, Satsuma? Well, it's a... It's not it's a, a, it's a it's a it's a mandarin. It's a mandarin, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So and you wouldn't necessarily maybe you would add one or two for that particular acidity or flavor to it, but if yeah. you eat five, that's almost oh. a meal. I mean, you oh. <laughs> And I'll tell you, you you're going to be healthy. You you're you're clearing up any sort of sinus thing because, mm. you know, nice. I'll say it, I think I do this every year. They're high in synephrine. And synephrine is a natural occurring antihistamine. And there's no mistake that it happens this time of year mm, so great. and yeah you eat three or four of those and if you thought you had any sniffles coming on it sure. would eliminate it i guarantee it nice. so that is really what's coming out and that's really the preview of the citrus season that starts in the fall period over into the new year mm -hmm. 
The other item that's around now is the navel. However, I can't recommend that this early in the season uh, like I can the satsuma. Oh, good to know. Well, yeah, the navel is is just what what growers, they talk about what is talked about in in harvesting are the shoulders of a season. Right. That's the beginning or the end. And both of them will yield a good amount of money because the supply is down. But the front shoulder of any season is, is really a very risky uh, endeavor for an end user because generally you're paying a lot for, the, for having the first on your block, and also the flavor generally is not there. It hasn't. You're, it's being picked yeah. early. Yeah. So in the navel, you're going to have a pale piece of fruit that is very high in acid and very low in sugar, and just is not going to be what mm-hmm. you expect it to be. Sure. So I say pass on the navel for now. If you want to get some as Thanksgiving approaches, as a kind of a central platter for your uh-huh. table, fine. It's a beautiful piece of fruit. But for eating, I would absolutely stay with the satsuma. Great. Okay. Uh, a couple other uh, pieces. That's good to know. I mean, this is really, you know, it's a consumer segment where, yes, yeah. we turn people on of what's really great. But it's actually nice to say that you will see navels and they are expensive and they're just not there yet. Not save there. save the money. I mean, what you can yep. get for two navels in satsumas, and you will be way more satisfied. Nice. Yeah, two navels. You get ten satsumas for two yeah. navels. Yeah. The the other item. So this update is really just for the last of the sure. 2016 November uh, December, and that is the next couple items are lemons and grapefruits. Both of those historically have been this year historical highs in uh, consumer pricing. That has everything to do with the drought and hmm. the low supply. Uh-huh. But we are becoming getting into more supply as more areas come in the season. So we're seeing in lemons, we're seeing some uh, Arizona, Mexican, and California product. That amount of supply is lowering prices. So you're seeing much better pricing. Uh, finally, we're getting some relief from these $100 cases. And maybe, I don't know, it could have been 4 or $5 a pound lemons. Uh-huh. And, of course, wow. the quality uh, gets better as the season goes on, too. So you'll get a juicy piece of fruit from California, and it'll be it'll be much more uh, uh, easeful on your pocketbook. And and with, with grapefruit, now that we had some rain, even in Northern California, maybe not the ideal production area, Northern Cal, for grapefruit, uh, certainly for, for lemons, maybe, but... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I remember I was in in Palm Springs in mid October, and there was a grapefruit tree, and it was almost falling over. It was so full. Uh, there <laughs> yeah. were maybe literally forty or fifty grapefruit on a fairly small tree, not quite ripe yet. So yep. they should be ripe now. But yeah. how how do you expect uh, quantity and prices now that the weather is kind of adjusting a little bit? Well, the grapefruit is is the one item this this fall we're going to see a very good crop. I think there's more acreage. Great. Either there's more acres coming on, or, or maybe there's maybe a little more trout resistant. Yeah. I'm not 100 so sure. So prices should be fair. The, yeah, they should be very fair in the sizing, which is a, a medium to large. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of those. There's also a fair amount of smaller fruit, so you could find some value in what we call cello. Those are mm-hmm. three, four, five pound cello or, or net bags that they come in, which is great for families or people that want to juice grapefruits. Uh, and I love the juice grapefruit and, and and oranges and mix them both together. The grapefruit give you a lot of volume, and then of course that's very high in vitamin C too. And there's some wonderful varieties out. Mm-hmm. There's some pink ones, and there's some uh, blonde or blancos that are going to be available. 
and um, and there was also the deeper red, whether it's a star ruby or a real red. Those cut red and are very sweet, and they have some great full flavor and a great balance of sweetness and, and, and tart acidity. That's one thing you can count on with a grapefruit, that nice yeah. Uh, punch. Acid punch. Yeah. yeah. And and as you said, smaller fruit, usually better prices and with yep. fair supply. So grapefruit is in, is, could be one of those bargain things right now if yes. you need that vitamin C. Satsumas and grapefruit really where it's at. Yep. And, and lemon's good, but maybe a little pricey. Yeah. Um, awesome. The other, yeah. The other thing is that the Valencia, the California Valencia crop is over. So there may be a little trickling in from uh-huh. here or there. So yeah. The, that's why grapefruits might become the better piece of citrus, the juice, where that, that traditional Valencia juice and orange is, it had a short crop this year. So Fantastic. Citrus. Yes. Ah, good. Uh, what is that it. thing called again? Semfrefrin? Oh, senefrin. Senefrin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so grab, you know, you're going to find them in little boxes or little net bags. Yeah. Three, uh, two, three, four, five pounders. Those are real That's bargains. Okay. And as we get closer to the holidays, uh, more stores will have those as gift Excellent. Packs. Wonderful. Cool. Yes, Senefrin, it's where it's at. Get some satsumas. Thank you, Earl, for that you're update welcome, on citrus. We'll talk next week. Yes, sir. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and that was a packed hour on the world of spirits, alcohol, in this case, rum production, responsible rum production, sustainability in a bottle with Tristan Merman, the founder and CEO of Batiste Rum, the boutique San Francisco Bay Area rum producer, and also Earl Herrick with the weekly update from the world of healthy fruits and vegetables, what's in season. That sums up an hour of an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Speak to you then. Bye-bye. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. The show is made possible through the fantastic support of our underwriters, Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or the culinary arts, bowmancollege.org Thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. And Batiste Rum, the first eco-positive rum of the Caribbean. 
Ask for Batiste Rum at Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and other fine retailers. More information at batisterum.com. That's B-A-T-I-S-T-E-R-H-U-M.com. For more episodes and our podcasts, go to anorganicconversation.com. And of course, you can follow us on facebook.com forward slash anorganicconversation. Our Twitter handle is talkorganic, and we're also on Instagram. I'm Helge Helberg, host and executive producer of An Organic Conversation. And we'll be back with another episode next week. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>